This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Good to be preaching to you this morning. So, as Howard said, we are looking at the Lord's Prayer and we are in our penultimate week. Um, so, Tom will be sharing with us next week. But today, I get the, uh, the joy of speaking to you about forgiving, uh, God forgiving our sins. Um, so, I'm just going to read to you um, the version from Luke. Uh, so, I'm just going to read to you the Lord's Prayer. Um, he said to them, When you pray, say, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Okay, so today we're looking at the two lines that Jesus puts in this prayer, which is purely for our benefit. Okay, so the rest of this prayer is, I just think, an amazing window into how Jesus communicates with his Father. So whilst he's in his earthly body, he has to pray like us. He is to pray via the Holy Spirit like us, and he's communicating to his Father in heaven like us. So this prayer is a great window into the spiritual prayer life of Jesus. But this verse here, or these this little section, he puts in purely for our benefit. Okay, And I think the amazing thing is he is praying it, or teaching us to pray it, knowing full well that he is going to be the means by which we can pray it. Okay, so let's start off today. We're going to look at uh, Forgive Us Our Sins. We're going to do it in two sections. Okay, uh, so forgive us our sins. Now, in Matthew, it uses the word debt. Um, in Luke, it uses the word sin. Now, both of these two words are synonymous um, in Aramaic, so either one is an acceptable use. But I think this word debt uh, can be really helpful for us in terms of understanding what it is uh, or our situation with God. Now, I think it was in uh, the last two weeks, um, there was a news report saying that in the UK... Um, the average household has an unsecured debt, so it's supposed to reach a new high next year, of £13,200. So that's an unsecured debt of £13,200. Now, I know that debt can have massive implications for some people, and they live in genuine fear, but equally I know of people that can be in upwards of 20 grand's worth of debt, and you look at them, and they've got their two cars, they have their lovely holidays, they've got a lovely house, um, everything within that house looks pretty great. So the question is, actually, what has that debt, like what, what implication has that debt ever caused them? If they died tomorrow, what really will that, will that debt have cost them? It's a lot of zeros. Okay, but again, we're still able to function pretty well with this astronomical debt. And I think maybe thinking about our debt to God in light of this is quite helpful at times, because I think, much like our monetary debt, we can sometimes be in denial that we even owe him anything. Uh, Or we can see God as being this sort of faceless creditor that extends our credit without any real consequence. Or we can have the false belief that the debt that we do owe, we can actually pay it back. Okay? Uh, So I want to start today by saying really clearly three things, that our debt against God really does exist. 
okay, that our debt carries a very real consequence and that we categorically can never pay it back. Okay, okay so does my sin or debt really exist? The Bible, uh, which is our source of answers for all these kind of questions, gives a very simple answer. Yes, it does. Okay, so in Romans 3, uh, 3, 23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, that's our answer. We have all sinned. Um, now, Peter Lewis, who writes a brilliant book on the Lord's Prayer, takes us through a little thought experiment. So I'm going to do it with you. So he said, imagine a being whose standards were measurably high and utterly uncompromising. In fact, the standard that is expected of you is utter perfection. Imagine, too, that this being knows your every thought and penetrates into your every motive and the motivations deeper than your own self-awareness. Every action, seen and unseen, every failure to act, every single thought you've ever had. Such a proximity to that being would soon utterly demolish you. It would morally destroy you. You would have no excuse and no recourse before that perfect judgment. Okay, now I had... Uh, a few months back, a moment where I kind of felt a glimpse of what it might be to stand before such a being like that. So in the middle of a kind of a lively discussion with my husband at the end of the day, um, suddenly get a call from Steve Moat um, saying, uh, mate, just so you know, your live recording what you guys are talking about to the elders Okay, so Vox is this wonderful uh, tool, which is basically like a live, like just a walkie-talkie stream. And I, like, I could hear this conversation, and I knew something was bad. And Andy was like, just looking a bit sheepish. And I said, to, I was like, Andy, what, what's happened? And he said, I've just been recording our conversation. And I, I, my reaction was just to run up the stairs. It was the winter, and I found like the darkest kind of corner on the stairs and I just sat there and I didn't know what to do and I couldn't move from this darkness like I called Andy out I was like I made him sit there and listen to this conversation with me now by the grace of God what I was talking about didn't even get recorded okay but that didn't bring me much comfort because I think in that moment I realized that my sin came so close to being exposed but actually the one who I sin against saw that sin and he sees every sin okay and sometimes the things that we say that's not the worst of it it's the stuff that we think so I think for me in that moment it was a real kind of sobering moment of what it would be like to stand before God now even David our great king David um, he gets caught out in murder and uh, and adultery and he's just lost uh, his little newborn child and his response is this in Psalm 51 Against you and you only, so he's talking to God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. So David understands when confronted with his sin, that his sin is primarily against God first. So I think sometimes, so our judicial system works that we'll stand before kind of a third party judge and they'll pass judgment on what we have done. But when we stand before God, that God is the judge, but he is also the one that we have sinned against. Okay, so John Piper uh, says this, and I think it's a really helpful way of kind of unpicking what it is David's saying. He says, this does not mean that Bathsheba, so the lady involved, and Uriah, the man that was murdered, Uh, and the baby weren't hurt. It means that what makes sin to be sin is that it is against God. So hurting man is bad. In fact, it is horribly bad, but that is not the horror of sin. 
So sin is first an attack on God. It is a belittling of God. And David admits this in striking terms when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, our pride will regularly lie to us about our sin. And I think, actually, for me, that Vox moment, I'm really glad that happened because I think I suddenly was realised and confronted with the reality of my sin. So we often just think we are better than we are. And I think even a little test this morning, like sometimes I remember kind of sitting in, uh, so I grew up in an Anglican church and we had to kind of think about confessing our sin or the sins that we'd done that this week. Sometimes I was like, I can only think of two or three. And I felt pretty like happy about that. But actually when you think about the sins that you've committed against, or, so this is the challenging one, the sins of omission. So what are all the good things that you've neglected to do. So actually, when you kind of weigh those two, actually, we are not in a good state. And guys, I'm going to make no apology today, especially in this first section, of taking us to a place where we feel in possible despair, okay, about the situation of our sin. So we need to have the reality of our sin before us. us. So J.I. Packer, he says this, if you've not learnt about your sin, you cannot understand yourself or your fellow men, or the world in which you live, or the Christian faith. And you'll not be able to make head nor tail of the Bible. Because the Bible is an exposition of God's answer to the problem of human sin. And unless you have that problem clearly before you, you'll keep missing the point of what it says. So all of us, all of us have had those moments of kind of wanting to hide in the dark. And actually this morning, if you are struggling to see your own sin, then actually a really good place to start is just to pray, God, would you reveal my sin in my heart? And guys, I'm just going to pause for like 10 seconds just so actually we can just think about our sin. Okay. So hopefully, well, so now I've lured you into thinking about your sin, I'm going to tell you that it's a really big deal, okay? Uh, so our sin carries very real, uh, very real consequences. Fillmore says that it's, um, there's very, very few things in our culture that are taboo to talk about. Um, but there's still one thing that is considered very impolite to mention in conversation, and that's the fact that every single one of us is going to die and then face judgment. So often we can kind of make light of death But I think, worst of all, sometimes we can make light of God and his judgment. Now, the Bible tells us that these are the two realities that we're going to face. So, in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, And I think in the world, we get kind of a lot of responses that are quite popular. So, firstly, we get people that just flat out deny that there's a God. So in Psalm 53, verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, even if we do accept there's a God, we can kind of uh, either make light of what it's going to be like to stand before him. So Winston Churchill remarked um, when asked about whether he was prepared to meet God, he said, well, I'm prepared to meet my maker, but whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Okay, so he sort of makes light of this situation. Or we can get situations like Dawkins, where Richard Dawkins and Stephen Fry, in their arrogance, see the moment where they are confronted with God to put him on trial. Yeah, yes. I think even as Christians, we can be really guilty of not letting the horror of our sin sink in. So we can sometimes believe the lie that because God is good and because he is loving and merciful, that he will just overlook our debt. 
Okay? But this morning I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about God's judgment and his wrath and his death. Not topics that we like to be reminded of, but actually topics that are really serious for us to, to address. Okay, so in the Bible there are nearly 20 different words to describe God's wrath. Okay, um, and it's spoken of over 600 times in the Bible. And I think often we can think that the, the God of wrath, that's just a God that we hear about in the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, it appears 25 times. And the Bible even speaks about Jesus himself pouring out his wrath on unrepentant sinners. Okay, the Bible speaks more about God's anger, his wrath and his fury than it does his mercy, his love and his grace. But it's really important for us to remember that God's wrath it is not sinful like our anger so often is. It is the right uh, and good response to moral evil. So it's precisely because God is a God of love and justice that he must hate evil and all who do evil. Because evil is an assault on whom and what God loves. So even in this last week, uh, people are utterly outraged by Trump um, and the, the fact that he will not condemn uh, the neo-Nazi violence in Charlottesville. So people can see that in the face of what we think is evil, it is good and right to stand up and judge and condemn. And in the face of sin, God is right to be mad. So would a loving God really punish us? If he's a loving God, then he, why would he send us to hell? But actually, if we look through the Bible, we can see time and time again that God, yes, he, he is going to punish and he does punish. So he, he floods the whole earth because he's, not, he's just not happy with anyone. Like, there's no one that meets the standard. Or even when we look in Revelation, there's not kind of good things to come for those that don't know Jesus. And people will still say, but would a loving God really do this? So I remember, like, so I used to teach A-level philosophy over at All Saints, and we'd go round and round and round with this, this debate. But I'd never be, really be able to just turn around and say, well, yes, he would. Because God, although he is a God of love and mercy, he is a God of wrath as well. Okay, now we must, as Christians, and it's uncomfortable, and it is uncomfortable, we must hold up these characteristics. Of, so he is, it's not like he's this schizophrenic God that doesn't really know who he is. He is a God of love fully, yes, but he's also a God of wrath and, just, and justice. Okay? So number three, we categorically can never pay our debt back. Okay, so we have a tendency um, to categorise people, and we, we could do quite a good job of this. So we tend to put maybe all of those that we deem to be worse than us, perhaps the rapists, the adulterers, the child molesters, the benefit thieves, uh, the bankers, the immoral ones, we condemn. But any that are like us, we condone. And incidentally, whenever we do seem to weigh our own actions, we always fall into this category. We believe the lie that we are essentially good people. Maybe we've made a few mistakes, but we kind of basically, when push comes to shove, push comes to shove, we believe that we are good people. But it's not our opinion of us that matters. It's God's opinion of us that matters. And in Romans 3, uh, verse 10 to 12, this is what God says. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one good, not even one. Okay, so this morning, I want to tell you God has two categories, and that is perfection, utter perfection. Now, when I say perfection, I mean perfect in obedience to God's law in every thought, every word, every deed, 
And we have to do it willingly, instantly, and gladly, uh, gladly out of love for his character. Okay? So that's the standard. And if you're not in that category, you're a sinner. That's what the Bible says. So do you need to work out which category you're in this morning? Okay, so if an alcoholic or a drug addict can only truly be helped when they acknowledge their addiction, then we can only be helped when we acknowledge that we are a desperate sinner in serious trouble without a hope of possibly redeeming our situation. Okay, so we need to declare moral bankruptcy before God. Okay, now I think it is only in this backdrop of understanding that our sin against God really does exist, that our sin carries really serious consequences, and thirdly, that we can categorically never pay it back. It's only in that backdrop that we can, we can feel a, a thirst and a hunger um, and a real need for this hope that is offered in Jesus. Okay? We have to see those two things together. Now, this hope, this amazing hope, um, I'm going to just read you a quote. It says, the gospel is about God's solution to humanity's greatest problem. So let's say that again. It is God's solution to humanity's greatest problem. So the problem is 100% ours. It's not even a tiny bit God's, and yet he provides the whole solution. Okay, so John Stott says this about God's love, but we have to remember that it is a holy love, a love which yearns over sinners whilst at the same time refusing to condone their sin. So how on earth is a God that is fully just and fully fair how is he going to kind of redeem us without compromising that justice? Okay, so how is he going to deal with this issue? And in Romans 3, 23 to 25, we, we hear the answer. So we looked at this verse earlier. So it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by this grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now what this amazing section of the Bible tells us and other verses all over the Bible is that God himself took personal responsibility for our sin. So if he was to simply overlook our sin, he'd, we'd be right to be outraged at this yeah, and he would no longer be just. So just as with the Trump situation, actually we, we, don't, think he's, we don't think he's good because he's, he's failing to kind of acknowledge the, the evil that's gone on there. But, and God, he'd be right if he just overlooked our sin we'd be right to think that he was no longer just. But in Jesus Christ, dying in our place, that justice has been served. So he paid the debt for our sin and fully justified, uh, fully satisfied his own, God's own sense of justice. And what is amazing, this, this is the amazing part, there are still only two possible states that God expects, and that is perfect, and that is sinner. But for those of us that put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we are no longer seen as sinners. We get all of Christ's goodness, all of his perfection, and we are seen as perfect and spotless and blameless in his sight. Okay, so this picture relates to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is our gospel hope. This is our message that we have to cling to. Now, Martin Luther says this, we must teach this to others and to ourselves, and we must continually beat it into our heads. So even when I was preparing this, I was thinking, oh, 
I just forget this all the time. I forget that this is the reality. And therefore, I think when I, when I do that, I hold, if I hold my sin lightly, I hold what the hope that Christ offers at the cross lightly as well. Okay, so there's two kind of possible responses to this section this morning that I just want to look at. So if you don't know Jesus, or you thought you did, or maybe for the first time you're understanding the seriousness of your sin, you can say this morning, um, Jesus, I want to put my hope and my trust in you. I see that my sin issue is bigger than I ever thought, and I want to put my faith and my trust in what you did at the cross. And for those of us that are Christians... We need to cling to this hope that is found at the cross. So Piper says this, we are sinners and we are beggars. And if we recognise this sin, fight it and cling to the cross of Christ as our hope, the Lord will hear us and answer our prayer. So we must identify as sinners, though this is no longer our identity. And I just want to talk very, very quickly about kind of why Jesus is is talking to us about this bit here. So he says, so the question I was thinking of when I was, when I was doing this is, if Jesus was this once and for all sacrifice, and if when I put my faith, or when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, if that dealt with my sin, past, present, and future, why is he telling us here to repent daily? Okay, why is he like kind of commanding us to live a life of repentance? And I think in some Christian traditions, um, it can wrongly teach that each time we repent, we kind of get a new wiping away of our sin. Okay, and the issue with this is that it lessens what Christ did on the cross because what it's saying is the real thing that makes us right before God is our ongoing, um, is sort of our regular repentance. So every time we repent, we get our sins cleaned. It's not that Jesus himself was the once and for all sacrifice. And also, I think if we do live under that understanding, you live in constant fear that actually if you die with unrepented sin, there's going to be serious consequences, okay, and that you're going to have to deal with that in the next life. But this is not what this passage is saying, and we know that because the Bible makes it really clear. So in Hebrews 10.10, it says, For we have been made holy through the sacrifice of, uh, of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So it's talking to us, so when Jesus is saying we we kind of we have to pray this on a regular basis, it's saying it in the context of us being fully justified through our faith in Christ and in that state of closeness with God. So this is the prayer where we can come and say to our heavenly Father, "Forgive us our sins." And what we're doing here is we're recognizing that our uh, we we need to have forgiveness for our sins because it spoils that close uh, that communion with Him. So we confess to restore that closeness. We're not confessing because um, our, sins no, our sins no longer damn us, but it's a way of restoring that intimacy with our Father. And I think a lot of people can sometimes think that the end destination of Christianity is the forgiveness of sin. Okay, but the true prize we get from being a Christian is that actually once our sins are forgiven, we can enter into this intimate relationship with Christ and our Heavenly Father. And actually, when we are called here to repent um, daily, we our, our desperate yearning should be to be able to walk intimately with our God. Okay, um, And so we confess our sin because we recognise how it puts a block on that intimacy and we're restoring that. And I think as Christians, we need to think as well and remember that it really saddens God when we do continue to sin. So as Christians, we have received his perfect love 
as a motivation not to sin, and we also have the Holy Spirit within us helping us not to sin. And I think it upsets God more when we sin than it does anyone else. So I'm going to say again, we repent not to earn our salvation, but to recognise that our human nature before an, our human nature before an Almighty God stops our intimacy with our Heavenly Father. Okay? Right. That is our first section done. Okay? Uh, we are now going to look at, um, as we forgive those who sin against others. Um, I'm not going to lie, guys, it, it is, it's not much easier for us in this section either. Um, Okay, so uh, I'll just read it in context. So forgive us our debts, uh, forgive us our sins, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Or in Luke it says, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. So I'm just going to look at three Bible verses um, very quickly. So we've got Matthew 6, 14 to 15. Now this comes immediately after um, Jesus has just taught us about the Lord's Prayer. And it's like, he says this, just to kind of red flag this, and say, it's a big deal, by the way. So he says, uh, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Carrying on in chapter 18, Jesus tells a story, which we're not going to have time to go into massive detail today, which is a shame, um, of the unforgiving servant. So you've got this servant that owes this massive debt to his master, absolutely huge. Now, in his grace and mercy, the master lets his servant off this huge debt. Okay, now, this servant then wanders off and he finds someone that actually owes him money. Okay, and it's a really tiny amount compared to what he's just been let off. Um, And in response to the fact that he doesn't forgive this person their debt, Jesus says this in the story, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. The master found out about the unforgiving servant until he could pay back all that he had owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister in your heart. Okay, and then in Mark eleven we we've got, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. So that your heavenly father, uh, so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Okay, so hands up if you find the second part of this easier to pray than the first. No, no, no one. <laughs> exactly. I think all of us find this prayer, this first part of this prayer, easier to do than the second. Um, so, and I was kind of just thinking about this, and I thought even just a massive sense of conviction in my own heart that we are more troubled when someone has hurt us at the fact that they've hurt us than by our own lack of forgiveness. I'm like this. I don't know whether any of you guys are, but I really struggle sometimes. To The first thought in my mind isn't, why can't I forgive them? And I think it's amazing that actually on um, receiving the very first thing, um, after we've received the forgiveness of God, that we are asked to do is to give it to someone else and to forgive someone else. So the thing that we desperately need and we want from God is married together with something we find near impossible to do and don't even want to do. Um, Now, Mark Jessica says this, As guilty sinners, we are prone to expect mercy when we commit sins against others, yet we hypocritically demand justice when others sin against us. And I think what he means by this hypocrisy here is that we can accept that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is enough for our sin, yet when it comes to the sins of others, it might just be too merciful. Okay, so if they do know Jesus, we can think that his death on the cross is too merciful for them. But if we don't know Jesus, 
we can, if they don't know Jesus, we can think that God's ultimate justice and judgment over that person isn't going to be a harsh enough punishment for them. So it's an issue of trust and whether we trust in the character of God. Okay, now it can read as well this section a bit like a legal clause. And I think when I was first reading it, I was thinking, oh man, imagine if this was the case. Imagine if God really did forgive me based on how well I forgive others. Just think about that for a minute. Just think of like kind of every grudge you've ever had or actually when you kind of, you think you've forgiven someone and you bring it up and you kind of throw it in their face again and again. Imagine if that's how God forgave us. But it can't be that, okay? It absolutely cannot be that because the Bible says very clearly that we cannot earn our forgiveness. Okay, so if, um, if that were the case, then I would, if I was really good at forgiving people, then I'd feel pretty confident that I was going to get a good deal, okay? But we cannot earn our forgiveness, Okay, this is a free, unmerited gift of grace and mercy from God. Okay, now John Piper, guys, forgive me for, for my quotes. I just really find when I'm reading, I don't know about anyone else, that other people tend to, like, tend to have worded things a lot better than I could say. Um, so John Piper says this in kind of helping us to understand what this bit means. No one who cherishes a grudge against someone dare approach God in search of mercy. God treats us in accordance with the belief of our heart. If we believe it is good, and beautiful to harbour resentment and to tabulate wrongs done against us, then God will recognise our plea for forgiveness is sheer hypocrisy. He'll be ask, we'll be asking him to do what we believe to be bad. Now I think here what it's saying is that we need to have hearts that are willing to forgive. Okay, So actually if we think it's right or good or it's our entitlement to hold on to grudges... That is what John Piper is saying and what the Bible is saying our issue is. Okay, It doesn't mean, and I think I'm in real danger here of oversimplifying forgiveness of others. I know that for some people it is a battle to forgive and it feels, and it's a really long journey and it's really hard. But actually if the desire of our heart is, God, I want to forgive, would you help me to forgive? Then I think that is a good place to be. Okay, The challenge here is, if, if in your heart you believe that you're entitled to hold this grudge and yet, yeah, God, you just don't understand how much they've hurt me, that is what the Bible is addressing here. And God wants to address that today in your heart. Okay, so I just want to kind of pick out two, two points from this section. Um, really struggled with this because I think this, this one here is like, ah, oh, this could be a preach in itself or a series of preachers. Um, okay, so firstly, I think... Actually, how willing we are to forgive others reveals the penetration of the gospel into our own hearts. Okay, so I think actually when we understand, firstly, our sin before an almighty God, and we, that is our backdrop, and we understand the huge amount, and do you know what, I don't even think we can understand the amount of forgiveness that we've received from him. But when, we kind of, when we've got that drilled into our heart, forgiving others comes out of the overflow. And I think that's really, really important this morning. So if you are struggling to forgive, then the best place that you can go is to the cross and saying, Jesus, would you remind me of my sin? Help me to first see how I have wronged you. Remind me of the great debt that I, uh, that I owe you. Okay? And I think it's from there, that is our motivation to forgive others. And I think, so I was reading this from R.T. Sproul as well, and I thought this is so helpful. So he says, God knows every sin I ever committed and every sin of mine he's ever forgiven. Okay, so this is just, sorry, I forgot to say, sometimes I think we can think that God's forgiveness of us is 
it's forgive and, if, uh, forgive and forget, yeah? That, like, literally when we say sorry, there's, it's just gone. But I think this unpicks it a bit better. So it says, uh, God knows every sin I've ever committed and every sin of mine I've ever forgiven, that he's ever forgiven. And he will always have that knowledge because his knowledge is immutable. It means he remembers them against us no more. So though he is fully aware of our transgressions, he doesn't remind us, he doesn't call them to mind, he doesn't hold them against us. Okay, that's the essence of forgiveness that we need to imitate in the world. Yeah? So it's not that I'm not reminded of the hurt, but I don't call, I don't dwell on that. That's not like I'm going to take it to the cross, I'm going to take it to the cross, and I'm going to take it to the cross because that is what God has done with our sin. Now, I think, again, good notice a bit of a pant here, um, but even a few, a few weeks ago, I was reminded so graciously by Stephen Doe. So Steve always seems to be there seeing my worst moments. Um, and he was, he was sort of just counselling us through a little row that we'd had. We don't always row, by the way, but we had gone through a bit of a tricky time. And um, I had just really struggled, and I've, I think I've realised that I've struggled the most when I think I'm fully in the right and Andy's done something wrong. And I felt, like, on this particular evening, when Andy had done wrong, actually, I was going to punish him that evening. I was going to sabotage our lovely date night, and it was all going to be about the fact that he had done wrong and he had ruined it. And it was just, when I was sitting down with Stephen Joe, and I was sort of relaying this to them, and even as I was saying it, I was thinking, but I was in the right. And uh, Steve just kind of, in a really gracious way, just asked me the question about, um, how do you think God forgives you? Or something along those lines. And I was just like, oh, yeah. I've totally lost sight of what God has forgiven me uh, at the cross. And I think I, that, is our, that is where we have to go. If you are struggling with unforgiveness, you have to just go back to that place of, Jesus, would you remind me of the sin that I have uh, done against you and committed against you? So I think this can really help us, because I think sometimes when we think about forgiving others, we can think of it on a massive scale of like the, the real wrongs that people have done us. But actually, sometimes I think I find it hardest to apply this in like the small parts of life, where, like that, where Andy's just done a little niggly thing that's really bugged me. Okay, now secondly, this is my final point. Um, how we forgive others is meant to be the small story that imitates the big story. So I think our forgiveness in itself is supposed to be a missional thing and it's supposed to point people back to the gospel. So when we forgive those that don't know Christ, it's meant to point those people to the cross and to Jesus. And when we forgive those that do know Christ, it's supposed to point people to the cross and to Jesus. So our forgiveness is supposed to be a God-glorifying thing. Um, And I think I was thinking again about so even in my own family, I've got people that have left the church because the people in it hurt them. Okay, so they left church because people hurt them. And it, on one level, I think that is really sad, but I also think they've kind of missed the point. So the real test of our unity together, I don't think it's always determined by how little we manage to upset each other. Okay, but I think it rather it is determined by the grace and forgiveness that we extend to each other when we do sin and when we do hurt each other. Um, and again, guys, I'm not saying this is meant to be easy. Please hear me. Like, I feel like I've got massive work to do on this myself. Um, but I think we need to remember that our forgiveness of others and our willingness to forgive is supposed to be a distinctive trait in us that is supposed to shine a light on the gospel in what is an unforgiving and harsh world. Okay. So, guys, our response this morning, I feel like this has been 
quite a serious one, quite heavy. Um, I'm not going to apologise, even though I was just about to. Because um, I think, actually, sometimes there is no better place for us to be than kind of on our knees realising, actually, the gravity of our sin. And I think um, there's some of us that are here this morning that have never had our sin issue dealt with. So in our pride, maybe we've, we've believed that we were good people um, or that our sin didn't really have much of a consequence or that ultimately we could pay it back ourselves. But actually this morning, you can put your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus and remind yourself. So I, I once had a friend who kind of walked through Alpha with me um, and she, she just was kind of really hungry to know about God. And we were driving back home one day from, from an Alpha and she, she said, Vic, I think, I know I need to give my life to Jesus at some point, but I just can't do it now. And I think I felt totally gutted for her. And I think it's only this last week that I've sort of figured out why. She saw the end prize of, of, of kind of giving her life to Jesus as the forgiveness of her sins. But actually, she's totally missed it. Because the end prize is amazing, intimate relationship with God himself. Okay, Now, that satisfies anything that this world kind of claims to offer. Our satisfaction in that relationship is is above anything else. Okay, so I think this morning, if you're questioning, actually, do I want to put my faith and my trust in Jesus? It's not just the forgiveness of sins that you get. You get to have this intimate, amazing relationship with God that we were made and created for. (coughs) Now, I think there's those of us this morning that maybe have given our lives to Jesus, and our reaction, I think, just needs to be humility, and humility before the cross, and remembering that all the sin that we kind of bring to the table and nothing good, okay, that we bring to the table, actually all the goodness that we get comes from Christ himself. And I think there's probably some of us here today that are struggling with unforgiveness. Um, And it is a struggle. And guys, I just think, one, I think your motivation, it has to be, has to come from knowing how, how much you've been forgiven. So draw your eyes back to the cross. But also, I think we would love to pray with you um, and to stand with you on that journey of forgiving someone that might have really hurt you. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.